talking to someone, only to notice halfway through the conversation that they're not paying attention. That you can't make your point because they don't really seem to care and they're trying really hard and it's a little frustrating, right? Except, of course, that you've also been on the other side of this equation. You've also been a person that's done a poor job of listening and not pay attention sometimes. Uh, the reality is that we're all like this at times, and we're going to see that in their text. We're even like that with Jesus. Uh, Britta's already read the text for us. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word, and press them into reality in our hearts. I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. In uh, one of my favorite movies, I don't have a lot of favorite movies, I'm not saying it's one of the best movies ever. I just happen to like it. Uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Uh, three escaped uh, convicts, having broken off the farm, are rescued by a blind seer, a prophet. And, uh, well, besides rescuing them, he also prophesies for them. And, and what he says is this, and I can't say it in the rich baritone voice of the original actor. shouldn't even try. But if I go there, don't make fun of me. Uh, you seek a great fortune, you three who are now in chains, and you will find a fortune, though it will not be the fortune you seek. First, you must travel a long and difficult road, a road fraught with peril, pregnant with adventure. You shall see wonderful things to tell. You shall see a cow on the roof of a cotton house. Mm-hmm. And oh, so many startlements. I cannot say how long this road shall be, but fear not the obstacles in your path, for fate has vouchsafed your reward. And though the road may wind, and yea, your hearts grow weary, still you shall follow the way, even into your salvation. A little bit later, Delmar, who's the uh, dimmest of the three, um, asks, how, how do you know about the treasure? You say they've broken off and they're in search of a treasure. How do you know about the treasure? And Everett, uh, Ulysses McGill, the, the know-it-all, um, says, don't know, Delmar, though the blind are reputed to possess sensitivities compensating for their lack of sight, even to the point of developing paranormal psychic powers. Now clearly, seeing the future would fall neatly into that category. It's not so surprising then that an organism deprived of earthly vision, and he's going to go on, and he's interrupted by Pete. Pete's uh, actually pretty bright, but comes across as pretty stupid. Pete breaks in and says, but he said we wouldn't get it. He said we wouldn't get the treasure. To which Everett replies, what does he know? He's an ignorant old man. You get it? One second before, he has paranormal psychic powers, compensating for his lack of vision. And the next moment, he's an ignorant old man. Um, you, know, you can be privileged to talk to an expert who can tell you exactly what you need to know, maybe even what's going to happen. But if they tell you something you don't want to hear, you don't hear it. We're going to see that tonight with Jesus' disciples, that the disciples are like this and that we are too, that uh, very often we hear what we want to hear, that we often fail to listen, we fail to trust, and therefore we fail to follow Jesus as we should. But we'll also see that because Jesus is good and Jesus is God, that we can listen and follow him because Jesus is God and he is good, uh, we should listen to him. I'm going to ask three questions or talk about three things, uh, why we can listen, why we don't listen, and why we should. So, can, don't, and should. So, why we can listen. And our text is pretty clear, I'll have to make the point, that's the case as we go along, that we can listen because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, 
I'm going to do a little philosophizing for just five seconds, so don't tune out. But a major contention of the last 300 years is that we do not have access to God. That if there is a God, he's a deistic God, separate from us, not interested in our affairs. And that even if he wanted to communicate, he probably couldn't. Or if he has, he hasn't done so in a way that's reliable. That an ancient book like this, historical in nature, isn't really trustworthy. And that's sort of what drives much of modern critical thought regarding religion and scripture and why if you take a New Testament or Old Testament religion course here, you, you get a healthy dose of that, probably. And to that I want to say, no. Uh, we can hear. We can know God uh, because of who Jesus is. So it's a couple days after uh, our last incident. Uh, with Peter when he uh, got Jesus all wrong and got crushed and then got invited back. And we see that things are, are better because six days later Jesus goes on a hike. Takes three men with him. Peter's one of them. And he goes up onto a mountain. And here we see what I believe is God showing himself. We can know, we can hear, we can listen to God because God shows himself. In chapter 9, verse 2, uh, taking these men up on the mountain, he was transfigured before them. Really strange word, transfigured. Closest word we have to it now would be metamorphosis. Some fundamental transformation took place. Uh, his appearance was changed, and the text describes that he was brilliant, splendid, whiter than any uh, launderer of the time could have made him. Uh, another modern-day equivalent, although it's a little bit old now, is uh, in Calvin, in Calvin and Hobbes series. Calvin has a transmogrifier, which is a wonderful cardboard box, and he goes into it and sets it on something, and he comes out like a giant slug. He wants to be Godzilla or something. He's never exactly what he wants to be, but his appearance and nature is changed. And something like that happens here with Jesus, only uh, I would say it's not so much a change of nature as it is a revelation of nature. Uh, that Jesus' divine nature is seen most clearly. He has a changed appearance, but then also, stranger things happen, he has changed company. We have Moses and Elijah on the mountain with him. Uh, different folks are there accompanying him. And in Moses and Elijah, you have the Old Testament prophets par excellence. There are lots of prophets. These are the two uh, chief honchos, I guess, of the Old Testament. Uh, so in the New Testament, when you read the law and the prophets, well, one of them is sort of Moses, the law, and the prophets would be sort of Elijah and people that came after him. And Jesus is there with them conversing like he belongs. Because Jesus is a great prophet. Only he doesn't quite belong because he's spectacular. He's brilliant. He's transfigured. He's different even than these men. And it's also important to note that these men have been dead for a long time. Uh, so this account, if you haven't caught it, is spectacularly supernatural. If you trip over the miraculous and the supernatural, you got a problem with this account. Um, and it gets even more harrowing if that bothers you because in verse 7... Adding to the company of long-dead prophets is a cloud that talks. Uh, in verse 7, we see a cloud overshadowing them and a voice coming out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. And you put a bunch of pieces together. Moses and Elijah on a mountain after six days, and a cloud overshadows them. And this is the way God has worked in the past. Moses meets God on a mountain in Exodus, and God speaks. Elijah meets God on a mountain. And God speaks. In the Old Testament, when God wants to make his presence known to his people, he does it in a cloud, which both reveals his glory and conceals it at the same time. And so these men on the mountain 
And those who read the account, when they hear and see a cloud speaking on the mountain, their first thought is, this is God. This is God himself on the mountain speaking and saying, this is my son. So what we have here, I think, is God showing himself, both in the cloud and in the person of Jesus, revealing his nature. God shows himself and God speaks. God speaking from the cloud says, this is my beloved son. That word beloved is thick. Well-loved, unique. It means a lot of things. You should listen to him. So in his divine appearance, his nature coming through, shown, um, and the fact that he actually not only belongs with Moses and Elijah, but actually stands out from them because of his glorious nature, and the fact that God himself, in the person of the Father, speaking from the cloud, says, This is my Son. Listen to him. All these things shout one thing. Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. He is someone altogether special. We both see him and hear him that this Jesus is God's son. And it's important to realize what's going on. Not only that God has manifested himself and become clear uh, in the person of Jesus and his nature like this, but that he's walking the earth, that he's living with men, that he's revealing his nature and God's will. Uh, John calls Jesus the Word. Jesus makes God clear. God's been making himself clear for a long time in Scripture. This is sort of a concentrated version. God has drawn near so that you can know who he is, what's he like, and what his will is in the person of Jesus. We can indeed hear God and know him. Um, and some of you may actually struggle with this more than others. For some of you, it's like, yeah, I know. I trust the Bible. It's good. Jesus is clear. I can get him in the Bible. For some folks, it's not that easy. You know, this is some old book written a long time ago. How do I know I can trust it? How do I know God can speak? And, or has spoken in a way we can rely on. Um, and, we, and we have some clues here in the text, I think, that are helpful. That this whole account is written from the perspective of the disciples. In uh, verse 2, we see that uh, he was transfigured before them. It's sort of strange, we think, it, uh, about it. Jesus makes himself known in glory in that these three guys who are just fishermen are important enough to actually be in the story. They actually get to see it. He's transfigured before them. And in verse 4, there appeared to them, these three guys, Peter, James, and John, who might be hiding behind a tree or something. It would be reasonable. Um, they, they see this. And they see this so that they can know who Jesus is and what he's like. And that they might record these things for our benefit. These events, Scripture is true, which I believe it is, happened in real space and time and history and were recorded for us. So that you have a reliable account of who Jesus is and what he's about. Some folks don't think that's possible. I think it's altogether possible, likely, and true. If you have problems with this, come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. So I contend that you can hear God in the person of Jesus and in his word in Scripture. So if God has really spoken reliably, why do we have a hard time listening? I'm going to move a little faster here on out, I believe. Uh, why we don't listen, why do we have a hard time listening? Uh, there's two reasons. One, we're often too busy talking. And uh, we have the example here of Peter. Jesus is being transfigured. He's talking to uh, Moses and Elijah, 
two great men who have been dead. And Peter's like, oh, now's a good time to talk. So he, uh, he jumps in, uh, the impetuous one, and says, hey, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Uh, you know, sometimes you have social cues, it's time to get quiet. You know, you've all, even if you're not a Christian or religious, you've had this experience. You're in a group where it is a, like a group prayer, and someone's praying, and like you didn't get the cue, and so you just keep talking on, and everyone's listening to your conversation, and no one actually tells you, like, hey, dude, quiet. They just sort of wait till you figure it out. It's very awkward. Peter missed that social cue. He's just sort of like talking and oblivious to the fact that he should shut up. Um, and he's speaking foolishly. He's saying some things that aren't very smart. And to, and to defend him somewhat, verse 6 sort of says that. Like, verse 6 says, hey, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about because he's scared to death. Uh, which sort of makes sense, but you should be quiet anyway. There's a Jewish proverb that goes something like, uh, better to be thought a fool, keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool, than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> and uh, that's what goes on here, it looks like. He, he's saying silly things. First of all, he calls Jesus rabbi, which Jesus is. But just a chapter ago, he said Jesus was the Christ, which is God's own son, the Messiah, the promised one. That would seem like a better title, um, a better account, because Jesus agreed. Like, you're more than just a teacher. And, and God is, Jesus here is being revealed in his glory with two prophets, and you just call Jesus a teacher? Sort of weird. And then there's a proposal. I'm going to make you three tents. And I don't want to crush Peter too much, because it's pretty remarkable what he's saying. He's basically volunteering, like, we're up on a high mountain, but I'll go all the way down there, get all this stuff, come back, and build you three tents. And y'all can stay here, and presumably I will stay here with you, and we'll take care of you forever. I mean, it's a pretty, I think that's sort of what goes with the package. It's a pretty bold, sacrificial proposal. But it's also utterly ridiculous. First of all, who says Moses and Elijah should even get a tent? Like, Jesus is actually head and shoulders above these guys. He's transfigured in glory. These are just, they're not worthless. They're important men. I'm not downplaying that. But you know, shouldn't Jesus get a castle and the other guys get tents? Or, I mean, there's something a little fishy here. Um, and, and the verdict sort of comes through in the way God breaks in. Uh, God speaks himself with, it seems, very little regard for what Peter is saying. He just sort of butts in. In verse 7, uh, the cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yeah, he doesn't exactly tell Peter to be quiet. But no one really takes Peter very seriously. Peter, just listen to Jesus. And here we've got to take a step back and figure out what's going on here. What is Peter talking about? What's Peter doing? And this is important. Chapter 8, Peter sort of gets Jesus right. He says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right. I am the Messiah. I'm the suffering son of man. I have to go die. Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know any Messiah like that. You can't die. And he rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes him. It comes a rebuke fest. And um, it's, it's sort of messy and hard. But what we see there is that Peter has a hard time with the idea of a suffering, dying Messiah. Someone that has to die for God's people. He, he, he doesn't like the idea. Jesus shouldn't have to die. The king shouldn't have to die. And I think we have here, in a far more subtle form, the exact same thing. Jesus has said clearly, I have to go to Jerusalem to die. And here up on the mountain, far removed from Jerusalem and all the suffering and sin and death down there, here's Jesus in glory. Peter thinks, let's stay here. I'll get us some shelter. We can stay here forever. This is great. This is a nice little party here. Far more subtle, but I think it's the same story. Jesus, let's stay here in the glory and in the good, 
above the mess and not go down there. So I, I think part of the reason that we don't listen is because we're too busy telling our own glory story, rehearsing over and over. We're, we're too busy talking about what we really want for Jesus, for us. Jesus, what I really want for you, for me, is this, instead of actually being willing to listen to what God's trying to tell us. We're too busy talking. Secondly, we're not trusting. And I'll do this quickly, but as they're going down the mountain in verse 9, Jesus tells them again, you may have just seen me in glory, and I'm sure etched into their minds forever is this image of Jesus in glory. Going down the mountain, Jesus says, just so you don't forget, I'm the Son of Man and I have to die. Tells them in verse 9. Tells them in verse 11 and 12. They don't really seek clarification. They do ask a question. They ask the question, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? I'm going to try to explain this really quickly. When the Old Testament came to an end in Malachi, the last verses basically foretold that the Messiah would come, the king would come, and he would set everything right. But before he came, Elijah would have to come first. And the way people took that was, when the time is right, God will send Elijah, or a prophet like him, who will prepare the way. And then the king will come, the Messiah, and it will be a big party. It will be glory. And there was no understanding of suffering. And so Jesus is saying, I have to go suffer and die. And they're saying, but wait, what about Elijah? Where's Elijah? And I think this is more of an argument than a question. And I'll use a story or a movie to illustrate this. And um, in, the, in the movie Stranger Than Fiction, uh, Harold Crick discovers that someone is writing a story. Have you all seen the movie? It's a really good movie. He's an accountant. He discovered that someone is literally writing his story, that he's a part of a play or a book or something. And he, and he hears the narrator speaking occasionally and finds out that it sounds like he's supposed to die. And he doesn't know what to do about it, of course. He doesn't want to die. And so he goes to a lit critic or someone like that, someone who knows books very well, a novelist, and asks, what, what do I do? Someone's writing my story. I mean, what do I do about that? I don't want to die. And uh, the lit critic says, it would be really good for you if you could figure out whether your story... Is it tragedy or comedy? Is it comedies uh, end well? They have happy endings. Even if there's tension and turmoil, turmoil, there's, there's still a happy ending. Things turn out well. If it's a tragedy, well, someone's got to die. And Harold Crick, of course, wants a comedy. What the disciples want is a comedy. Sure, there can be tension and turmoil, but there has to be a happy ending to the story. And Jesus is saying, Son of Man has to die. And he's not denying that there's not a comedy at the end when everything is set right and he rises from the dead. He says that, but they can't hear that. He is saying, first there is a tragedy. I, the Son of Man, must die. I must suffer, I must be mistreated, ill-used, unfairly treated as an innocent man, and then die. It's a tragedy. They don't listen because they don't like Jesus' story. They don't trust him. They want the comedy. They want a different story altogether. And here's it's an important thing for us to realize. Here's what comes down to you. A lot of things about the Bible happen on a mountaintop. Okay? But Christianity is not a mountaintop religion. You don't get to live there. Christianity is not an escapist fantasy. For cynics and skeptics, I think the Bible's account of reality is better than any account of reality that you could offer me. It makes sense of the sin and brokenness and sadness of this world better than your story. And this Christianity isn't a way of escaping these things. Like Peter, we want to escape it. We want to go live on the mountain above the fray and the sadness and the sickness and the death and the suffering. We want to get away from it. We think Christianity will get us away from it, perhaps. 
and in our culture, we've been sort of told that we deserve this. You know, that we can, we deserve to live above the fray. It's our right to do so. So let me offer you a little diagnostic. Listen to your heart. This is a way of getting deep down enough to see whether or not you can actually listen to Jesus or you're too busy rehearsing your own story to listen. Do you love the just listen to your heart message of this culture? This is what culture does this all the time. Just listen to your heart. Search with that. The answer is there. If you love that, you love your story more than the story Jesus has to give you. Guaranteed. Just that way. Because uh, you're not actually going to have Jesus' story there. Jesus' story will march you through suffering before you get to have the glory. Uh, secondly, have you already planned your future? You know, like maybe even marked it on the calendar. And it looks like a continual progression towards success. Uh, third, do you think you deserve all the good things you have in life? Like, you really deserve it because you've worked hard for it. And conversely, are you frustrated sometimes, maybe even angry with God, because things aren't going your way and you're surrounded by people you don't like? Like, the people around you just, I don't like these people. I don't deserve to be here with these folks. And in this situation, I deserve better than this. You want to be on the mountain. You think you deserve to be there. And fifth, here's another one. Uh, if you're a Christian, you know scripture well enough that it calls you to do hard things, like love the people around you, even if they're very difficult. But you're really good at making 1,000 excuses why you're the exception, and you don't have to do it. These are all, and there's lots more, <laughs> all ways of diagnosing your heart and examining whether or not you actually prefer your story and its happy ending rather than listening to Jesus. Some of you may have lived on the mountain separated from the suffering and the death and the sickness and the sadness most of your life. And what I'm telling you should scare you. It should scare you. It really should. Um, because Jesus isn't there. See, he, he leaves the top of the mountain and he goes down into the mess. That's where he's going. He's going to die. He's going to work and serve those people. That's what he's doing. He's not staying. The only comfort I can offer you is that he goes down there, and if you go with him, you know, he goes with you. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty important, actually. It means if you don't go, you're up on the mountain by yourself. So um, that's why we don't listen. We're too busy rehearsing our own story. We don't trust Jesus' story. And lastly, why should we listen? And this is pretty quick and easy, actually. Uh, Jesus is the last word. And uh, verse 7 and 8, when God speaks from the cloud... He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then this really strange thing is thrown in at verse 8. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And I think in both the you listen to him, which is a, uh, a theological reflection on the Old Testament chapter, Deuteronomy 18, that foretold one who would come, who would be the last prophet. And then this image. There's God in the cloud. There's Moses, Elijah, great prophets. All of a sudden, they're gone. What do you have? You have here the last word. The final prophet, the last authority, Jesus. He is God's last word to us as mankind. If you're expecting something else, according to Christianity, it's not coming. He is the final authority and the last word. And it's sufficient. It's enough. It's enough for you to know God, how to be in a relationship with Him, and how to live wisely. It's enough. That's Christianity. If you don't think it's enough, we need to talk. We need to go find some other religion. Talk to me before you go find some other religion. Um, so we can listen to him because he's the last word. 
And the final authority, you know, we don't like the word authority very much. Um, but we can trust his authority. One, God stands behind them. But two, he's good. He's good. We see that in the fact that Jesus is not only the last word, but also the life giver. Um, and we see that in Jesus in his descent down the mountain. In verse 9, as he's walking down, he tells them again, I am the Son of Man, and I'm going to give my life away. Uh, Jesus is a life giver in the sense that he comes into the very midst of the madness, the chaos that mankind has made the world, full of sin and sickness again. He, he doesn't trust, he doesn't expect us to work our way to life and joy. Instead, he condescends. Um, what's a good word for it? Interferes, interrupts. He, he moves in. In order to bring life down to us, he draws near to bring life to us. And in verse 12, we see that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And he doesn't suffer things because it's a cruel tragedy. This text and other texts will tell us he suffers as a substitute. He comes and brings life to you by bearing your sin and guilt and death. A couple weeks we'll get to a clearer reflection on this. But he brings life. By being willing to bear your death and guilt. That's how Jesus brings life. We can listen to him because he's God's final word. And because he's good enough to give up his life for you. So we've seen that we can listen because God speaks in history through Jesus. We don't listen because we like our own story better than we like Jesus' story. And we should listen. Because Jesus knows what he's talking about. He's God's last word. And he's good. He's really good. He loves you more than you love yourself, actually. Last question. Um, maybe a little bit of a gut punch. So where are you? you know, in this image, they're down and then they're up and they're way back down again. Where are you? Where do you think you should be? Are you up on the mountain? Perhaps imagining you're just hanging out there with your best friend Jesus. Uh, I don't know, maybe playing golf together up there. I, I don't know. You're paying golf. But you've got you and your concerns, and you're just sort of trusting that Jesus is on board with those things and supporting your plan for a great and happy life. Not actually really listening or caring about what he actually might have for you. And I want to tell you that if you think that you're up on the mountain with Jesus and you deserve to be there, I think in the long term you're going to struggle with believing Jesus is actually good. Sounds crazy. I mean, I'm up on the mountain. It's nice up here. All the bad stuff is down there. If I'm up here on the mountain, of course I think God's good. Not necessarily. Because I think you're going to find, if you decide to live your life above the fray where I believe Jesus is at work, you're going to live a lonely existence, separated from the reality of your own mess. You don't deserve to be on the mountain. You're not good enough to be on the mountain. You're actually down in the mess with the rest of humanity. You actually need to be down there because it's where Jesus is. You will not be real about yourself and your need for him. You'll be separate from what Jesus is actually doing in the world. Yeah. I don't want you to be up there. At least not yet. God brings us to that later. But I don't want you to be up there. You have a false view of yourself and the way things really are. You're going to be up on an imaginary mountain actually watching Jesus sort of walk away from you to take the imagery of this text literally as he descends to bring life to the people down there that are ready to admit they're a mess. Yeah. Now, there's some of you 
maybe on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And you're thinking, never been up on the mountain. Maybe I haven't even seen a mountain. Jesus would never invite me up on a mountain. Don't know anything about glory or even goodness. I'm so far down in the mess, <laughs> so far down in the bottom, in the valley, that I can't see over the heads of the worst people in front of me. I can't imagine Jesus could actually even find me if he wanted to. That's how far down in the valley I am. How lost and sad, lonely, broken I am. Maybe some of you are there. Most of you are probably somewhere in the middle. Nevertheless, you need to know it's God's plan. It's God's intent to march his redemptive plan right into the heart of the mess of mankind. To bring life to it. To speak into it. To give his life for it. To restore it. There's not a single person here that can't hear God's word if they embrace Jesus by faith. They can't know God, can't know His restoring abilities in their life. The way forward for you, whether you're on the mountain or down in the valley or somewhere in between, listen to Jesus. It's, it's here. Listen, follow, trust. I make it sound very simplistic. I know it's not. Realize your story is, uh, if you think this is farcical, Perhaps Christianity. I, I think your story perhaps is even more unrealistic. Consider it. Jesus has drawn near. He's shown his glory. He's willing to give his life. He has given his life for his people. For you. So let's listen to him. Alright, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Uh, that you